0: Welcome to School of Movies. The Mummy. And please do forgive this trailer, and at the same time, you're welcome for this trailer. It's the most 1990s thing ever.
1: Where did you get this? On a dig down in Thebes. Jonathan, I think you found something. There is an ancient legend Of a place known as the City of the Dead. I call it the doorway to hell. Where the earliest pharaohs were said to have hidden the wealth of Egypt. Are we going into battle? There's something out there. Something underneath that sand.
0: This is literally the score from Bram Stoker's Dracula, made in 1992. They came to uncover its secrets.
1: Mummies, my good son. This is where they made the mummies.
0: (laughs) They sought to unlock
1: its treasure. and then there was light oh boy what they did oh my god it does exist i think this may be the book of the dead was unleash a force unlike any the world has ever known you must not read from the book
2: what the hell was that? You have unleashed the creature that we have feared for more than 3,000 years. Whoa! He will regenerate.
0: And no longer be the undead.
1: We are in serious trouble.
0: They are about to double down on the 90s with O'Verona from Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Did
1: you swim? What's the occasion for Trust me, it calls for it. <laughs>
2: Universal Pictures invites you. This powers are growing.
1: What? This just keeps getting better and better.
2: To experience the adventure. It appears he's
3: already chosen his human sacrifice.
2: That will live forever. If
1: he turns me into a mummy, you're the first one I'm coming after.
0: The mummy. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the 1999 film by Stephen Summers, currently celebrating its 20th anniversary, and next week we'll be covering its 2001 sequel, The Mummy Returns. We're not touching Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, because we don't like it very much, for various, not especially fascinating reasons, but of course it's okay if you do like it. With us are Debbie Morse, major Mummy fan from Sequentially Yours.
4: I... I'm a
1: librarian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Another huge Mummy fan, so much so that he chose a piece from Alan Silvestri's Mummy Returns score when he guessed it on the sound of Gonzo many years ago. Mister James Bachelor of Bond and Beyond.
2: No more God Soup.
0: <laughs> and finally, Brendan Agnew probably never met a Mummy he didn't like. No. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for not screaming that it our is and breaking us. Now, for this first one, we're going to start off looking at the internet ticker to see its production heritage. Probably the most important predecessor to this one was the 1932 film. If you go back and watch it, firstly, you'll get a lot less action. But secondly, you'll notice some appropriate similarity between Karl Freund's film and that of Summers. For a start, it's all about Emotap, a mummified priest disturbed by incompetent grave-robbing colonists who gets used to the new era he awakens into. He actually spends ten years living as a modern Egyptian named Ardeth Bey, which is the name of Odette Fair's gorgeous Magi warrior in the 1999 film. Although that new identity in itself is skipped over, and how he gets set up with a rent-controlled apartment in Cairo and decides his new favourite 1930s foods and music and films is a movie I would far rather see than, say... X-Men Apocalypse, which does the same thing in the 1980s, only rather than dancing the jitterbug, he just wastes all our good missiles and shaves Charles Xavier's head. (laughs) Anyway, Imhotep is played by Boris Karloff with this really unnerving glare into the camera and an excellently creepy introduction scene where he steals a scroll and makes a man go... "Ah! Ah!" He's ultimately seeking to resurrect his forbidden lover, the Princess Ankh Sunamun, Imhotep soon encounters Helen Grozanova, a half-Egyptian woman bearing a striking resemblance to the princess. Believing her to be sun Mun, her reincarnation, that is, he attempts to kill her with the intention of mummifying her, resurrecting her, and finally making her his bride. Helen is rescued when she remembers her ancestral past life and prays to the goddess Isis to come to her aid. The statue of Isis raises its arms and emits a flash that sets the scroll of Thoth, On fire, this breaks the spell that had given Imhotep his immortality, causing him to crumble to dust. So, no Rick, really, at all. But the core story is still very similar, and would be further elaborated upon by The Mummy Returns. Sixty years after that film, in real life in 1992, producers James Jackson and Sean Daniel decided to update the original Mummy for the 1990s. Universal Studios gave them the go-ahead, but only if they kept the budget to around $10 million. Think about that, and laugh. Budget, <laughs> budget for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, three years earlier, $48 million. Budget for the eventual 1999 The Mummy, $80 million. Budget for Bram Stoker's The Mummy, a straight-to-VHS movie released in 1998 starring Amy Locaine and Lou Gossett Jr. to prematurely capitalize on the success of the then-in-production Brendan Fraser upcoming adventure, $2 million. Budget for the 2017 Tom Cruise Mummy film that nobody liked. $195 million. You could have made 97.5 Lou Gossett Jr. straight to VHS sequels for that. Estimated budget for when Blumhouse get hold of the Dark Universe film series and make them into dark horror thrillers rather than Avengers with Quasimodo? Less than 195 million per (laughs) movie. Anyway, back to 1992 and the development of this mummy. James Jax remembers that the studio essentially wanted a low-budget horror franchise. See, they were on the right track in 1992. In response, Jax and Daniel recruited horror filmmaker and writer Clive Barker on board to direct. I think this would have been around the time Candyman came out.
5: Yeah, I I don't think this is Clive
0: Barker's story. Yeah, no, 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 no. This (laughs) would have been better than the the, the eventual 99 version. Barker's vision for the film was violent, with the story revolving around the head of a contemporary art museum who turns out to be a cultist trying to reanimate mummies. Jax recalls that Barker's take was a dark, sexual, and filled with mysticism no type story. No fucking
5: shit. <laughs> no, you don't hire Clive Barker. Bing bong, Get Clive
0: that. Barker, dark and sexual. Are you? You know nothing of my work. <laughs> well, we we heard Hellraiser was a laugh riot. <laughs> Anyway, it, it would have been a great low-budget movie after several me, uh, meetings, Barker and Universal lost interest and parted company. Honestly, I kind of wish they'd still made it and then just kind of like, for the kids, made this one exactly as it was anyway, but it probably still would have affected the, you know, the, uh, the uh, Stephen Summers one. Uh, directors, Director Joe Dante of Gremlins and the Howling and in Inner Space was the next choice, increasing the budget for his idea of Daniel Day-Lewis as a brooding mummy... <laughs>
3: Oh so I if know you say,
5: at these, but oh my god!
0: So if I say I'm a mummy man, you will agree. <laughs> this version's draft was set in contemporary times. Oh god, so it would have been like all 1992, and it focused on reincarnation with elements of a love story. It came close to being made with some elements, like the flesh-eating scarabs, making it into the final product. However, at that point, the studio wanted a film with a budget of 15 million. They'd been nudged up by five million, and they rejected Dante's version. George A. Romero was brought in with a vision of a zombie-style horror film similar to Night of the Living Dead, but which also relied heavily upon elements of tragic romance and ambivalence of identity. This one revolved around female archaeologist Helen Grover. So, uh, if you're taking notes, they switched Helen Grozanova from the Boris Karloff version for a shorter name that only ever evokes the blue guy from Sesame Street. It is
5: pronounced Grover. All right. Grozanova is pronounced Grovner.
0: Okay, so Grovner became Grover. Okay, <laughs> and her discovery in Abydos of the tomb of Imhotep. And so it's a, a, the Helen was the lead. So it's a, it's, a, it's a lady in the lead. That's good. And uh, yeah, so this is. Romero's version. Unfolding in a nameless American city in modern times, Emotep inadvertently awakens as a result... See, nameless American city is cheap. Emotep uh, inadvertently awakens as a result of his preserved cadaver having been exposed to rays from an MRI scan in a high-tech forensic archaeology lab. This was the days when they were like, oh, science that shit. The script progresses to a fish-out-of-water story with... <laughs> I'm thinking of a, a, a trying-on-clothes montage here. Yeah. <laughs> When Emotep, having regained his youthful appearance, recognises the need to adapt to a contemporary society that is 3,000 years removed from the one he came from, assuming at first that he is a representative from the Bureau of uh, Antiquities. Helen finds herself drawn into a tentative relationship with Emotep, whilst also experiencing clairvoyant flashbacks to a previous life in 19th Dynasty Egypt as a priestess of Isis. Now, remember, folks, that Bram Stoker's Dracula came out in 1992, so this obviously they were like, right, we've got the property to do the mummy. How do we do that? Okay, Bram Stoker's director is forty million dollars. So that's <gasps> wow. What?
5: That's cheap. I'm impressed.
0: They, well, we talked about it when we did that that show, which is an excellent show, by the way, I folks. Forgot. He he. The whole thing is a, a love letter to uh, a hundred years worth of uh, cinema, and specifically um, the crazy effects of the Lumiere brothers and and uh, Méliès on the part of Francis Ford Coppola and it's by far my favourite of his films Anyway, summoning mystical powers through incantation, Emotep resurrects the mummy of Karis, a loyal slave whose body had been resting alongside his masters in the same tomb but is now held in a local museum Oh, Karis is a guy after escaping into the city sewer system, Karas embarks on a vengeful rampage against the various criminal fences and high society antiquarians who had acquired stolen relics from his tomb. So you got kind of a colonialism, like being like taken to task. Mm-hmm so yeah that's good yeah. Romero's script was considered too dark and violent by Jackson and the studio who wanted a more accessible picture Mick Garris who made Critters 2 and Hocus Pocus and that 1997 TV version of The Shining was attached to direct but eventually left the project and Wes Craven The Hills Have Eyes Nightmare on Elm Street and Vampire in Brooklyn was offered the film but turned it down and did Scream instead arguably his most influential movie in terms of what it did to postmodern horror followed by producing Dracula 2001 or Dracula 2000 if you're American which was rubbish. It took so long to get that film out over in the UK; they had to change the year.
5: Never call your film a year.
0: Two thousand.
5: Unless it's yeah. two thousand and one, that's fine. Right.
0: Yeah. Okay. Or
4: nineteen
0: eighty four. Yeah. Yeah. That's but those, but those not the but not the year it's released. Yeah. God, yeah. imagine the Matrix two thousand.
4: Oh God.
0: Wouldn't even make any sense. But uh, okay, right. So imagine the Mummy two thousand. Mm. So it's like imagine what the mummy would be like in the far off year of 2000 <laughs> unless it's a future shock thing I mean, but they they made a lot of things that were 2000 around about 2000. South Park even did like four episodes of season three were called something 2000 at the beginning Stephen Summers at this point had done the 1994 live action Disney Jungle Book that everyone's forgotten, the one with Jason Scott Lee as well as a riotously fun shipboard creature feature where modern day pirates fight giant carnivorous squid things Deep Rising, a 1998 film that as enjoyable as Treat Williams was in it, should frankly have been a Kurt Russell starring Jack Burton follow up, produced by John Carpenter Brendan, have you seen uh, Deep Rising? Oh yes, I, yeah.
3: I actually did. Kind of a um, a summer's run up to this, so I watched Deep Rising and The Mummies in close succession. Oh, cool. Just to kind of, and now I've found myself craving a rewatch of The Rise of Cobra. So I don't know how this is <laughs> going to turn out for me.
0: We saw that the other week. It's actually it's pretty good. It, it, it compared to the way Michael Bay did Transformers. Stephen Summers is pleased. To be doing G.I. Joe. Michael Bay made the, the uh, Transformers films like he was like, ugh, I'm embarrassed to be given this property. Ah, oh, fuck it. Stop playing with toys, boys. It just, how about you play with some kids? I know I said this a lot during the Bumblebee show, but um, that never comes across in G.I. Joe. It's always like, hey, do you know who's awesome to watch? all the Cobras and the Joes, although they did kind of force a bit of Transformers-type action into the Paris scene, where they were jumping around in mechanised suits. Yeah, but everybody's
5: having such a good time that it kind of slides.
3: But, yeah, it's... uh... With all the bad movies that we've had this decade, the bad movies from the previous decade almost seemed quaint. Like, I even watched Van Helsing and was like, you know, at least I can tell that people were sort of having fun with this. Yeah.
4: I personally love Van Helsing. It's another one. Not good. Not good, but entertaining as hell.
0: So anyway, Summers called Jackson Daniel in 1997 with his version of The Mummy as a kind of Indiana Jones meets Jason and the Argonauts, with The Mummy as the creature giving the hero a hard time. Summers had seen the 1932 film when he was eight and wanted to recreate the things he liked about it on a bigger scale. He'd wanted to make a Mummy film since 1993, but other writers or directors were always attached. Finally, it wasn't his time yet. Finally, Steve received his window of opportunity and pitched his idea to Universal with an 18-page treatment. At the time, this is absolutely true, Universal's management had changed in response to the box office failure of Babe Pig in the City. It was such a failure, it changed the management of Universal. It cost $90 million and it made $69 million. Imagine a $20 million loss these days changing management. It was directed by George Miller in between Thunderdome and Fury Road, folks. He also had a penguin picture in his head. And the loss led the studio to want to revisit its successful franchises from the 1930s. I don't know how you do that. Like, how you go, well, like remember when we were successful in the 1930s and we made films for no money and people went to see them a lot? Well, how about we throw loads of money at this one and then we'll have even more success? And somehow that mathematics in
3: this one case worked. I think a large part of it also had to do with the fact that they saw Bram Stoker's Dracula, which... Got the the it got around the rights issue, which with doing the whole Bram Stoker's Dracula, we're based on the book. We're mm. not technically the Universal property. And then Kenneth Branagh did Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and I think they were worried about being left out of their own Universal monster catalog. Yeah. They should have called it Universal's The Mummy.
1: Mm. Yeah,
0: that's actually not a terrible idea, like Universal Monsters: The Mummy. Like, but just like, like, that's better than Dark Universe. Dark Universe is everything you just described in Nobody's Having Fun in one two-word sentence that makes everyone go, oh, no, please. (laughs) Johnny Depp's in this one. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) he'll be invisible. Oh, that's not better.
3: (laughs) That's less nice.
0: worse. Anyway, he's not. And when you sit down and watch The Mummy now, especially now, in fact, it is a fairly transportive and time-displaced experience. It's definitely a 1999 movie. You can tell by the CG effects, which don't really kick in until Act 2, and they go plum crazy in Act 3. They have that millennial rubber, just-trying-things-out vibe to them, lacking weight and definition with the light not falling on them right and far too much reduced to brown smears, even in 4K. We'll be talking about the effects in just a bit, definitely. But... What they're surrounded by evokes Hollywood from the early 20th century, which, if you look into these silent epics, as they then give way to big swords-and-sandals Cecil B. DeMille-level blockbusters like Cleopatra and the Ten Commandments and Spartacus, frequently seemed to involve an unexplored fascination with ancient Egypt and Rome and the Bible in general. Yes?
5: I know why.
0: Hang on, let me just finish this. Okay. Hermione. <laughs> <laughs>
5: She even put her hand up. I, I did have my hand up at that point. <laughs> put
0: your hand down, Miss Granger. They, they were the new pharaohs of entertainment, Hollywood, after all, and have the same affection for grandeur and pageantry. Even old cinemas themselves were built to evoke stylized Egyptian architecture. Art Deco, and later the retroactive Dark Deco, stem from Egyptian lines. It's not surprising to me that Gladiator won Best Picture in 2000. Hollywood loves ancient Rome and Egypt and the racist southern states of the civil rights era 1960s.
5: Uh, Yes, the reason that they went quite Bible-epic... Centric in Hollywood was that they wanted to be able to put sex and violence in their films
0: and be able couldn't. to court Middle America, who are like, "Well, it is biblical, honey." Well,
5: exactly. <laughs> they, they couldn't do that and not risk putting off a massive portion of their audience unless they went, "No, it's about God. You're fine.
0: It's in the Bible.
5: Yes, so <laughs> you're fine I mean. watching
0: the Passion." The exterior shots of the 1999 Mummy are all about recapturing Lawrence of Arabia, David Lean's seminal 1962 desert epic with some truly awe-inspiring cinematography of the rippling dunes, exotic heat haze and soaring blue sky. Cinematographer Adrian Biddle, who shot Aliens uh, and uh, Princess Bride, Willow, Event Horizon and V for Vendetta, And uh, his picture here has this soft, filmic, golden glow. It feels like a little bit of that was lost for The Mummy Returns. It doesn't feel quite so classical in the way it's presented. And you can really tell when it does that bit where they flash back to the original film and it sort of cuts back and forth between The Mummy Returns from one angle and then The Mummy in another angle and there's just this slight disconnect. And despite the CG being ropey, the sets, costumes, props and practical work are all absolutely stunning. Production designer Alan Cameron created the catacombs and chambers of Hamanuptra to feel like the inside of the pyramids do in our heads, full of labyrinthine corridors and treasure hoards and shadows and sand and worn engraved stonework and shafts of light at diagonal angles and All kinds of secret doors. John Bloomfeld made costumes which evoked Lawrence of Arabia again, but with a spin and a twist of Indiana Jones. Every character looks distinct, and since we never really delve into anyone's secret pain or past life, they wear their personalities and backgrounds on their sleeves. So, what I'm going to do is I will toss out a character, and you guys say what we can really learn about Jonathan from how he dresses. Because we get a bit from how he talks, but we get a lot from how he dresses. So we'll just do this by character. We'll start with uh, Jonathan, the uh, the brother.
3: Well, the first thing that we see him sort of doing in in the movie, in his introduction, is doesn't he initially have a pith helmet that he's kind of playing around with? Yep. So you've kind of got the the initial reaction is, oh, he's kind of this explorer... And then you see a bit more of him. He's not actually dressed for adventure or exploration. Uh, he's he's wearing this stuff as kind of like a con. It, it sort of speaks to his his character. He's a grifter. He's not actually what he's trying to put on. And we'll see him try and adopt different personalities um, later on. So he kind of just like he just wears you know he'll wear clothing's more like clothing as more like props than actual you know. Functional for what um, for what it was meant to do mm.
4: He's trying to look like a gentleman I think he'd like a British mm-hmm. you know British aristocrat
3: mm-hmm.
4: but who's slumming it in Egypt I guess you'd say yeah. it's it's interesting to me because I you know as as previously stated I love love these movies and I had I've watched the first one uncountable times but this time I was noticing something is the fact that That Jonathan, yes, he's absolutely a grifter and a con man, but he's also Evie's brother and he grew up with the same parents. So clearly he learned a lot of he has a fair amount of background in Egyptian history and ancient Egyptian lore because there's the scene near the end where he's he's interpreting hieroglyphs and he gets all of an inscription. He gets all but one of them. And it. It clear it's clear that, you know, he does know stuff. He's not he's not stupid and he um clearly he, he that's not really the life he wants, but he could take that life if that was what he chose to do. Given his who his parents are, assumably it seems like she has gotten a long way in her career because of their parents, and probably if that's what he wanted, he could too. Mm
2: i kind of imagine that the parents were kind of yeah like encouraging them to learn ancient egyptian to learn hieroglyphs kind of expecting them to kind of <clears throat> pick up the baton and continue their work and as mm-hmm. you say like you know evie embraced that and fully built a career around that and you know going back to like you said the the moment where he's reading the um hieroglyphics it's when he when she calls out a manifest and he's like oh yeah yeah,
1: because he's mm-hmm. rusty.
2: He's just, and it's stuff that he, done, like, he, he obviously learned kind of as a child, but has chosen not to use it. So, yeah, I see what you mean. He's a slacker. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> well, he's a slacker and he's a gambler, and they don't make a meal out of it in either movie, but it's very clear that they went in different uh, paths on their lives because of their priorities for how to utilize their knowledge. Evie's a librarian, and so she's all about more more sort of a a service and for the uh, for the knowledge of it, whereas he's very much trying to enrich himself and there's there's you know he'll make wagers and he even talks about losing his fortune in the second movie. So it's it, again, they they don't like necessarily have a you know a long drawn out conversation about it, but that's just one of the ways that they're very good about contrasting the characters with using just bits and sprinkling of information.
4: Yeah, I was noticing just how much on this watch, just how much is told either purely visually or in throwaway dialogue. But if you pay attention, there's a lot more told and a lot more going on here than is ever explicitly stated on screen.
5: Yeah. There's a few hints to suggest that Jonathan's being dependent on Evie and considering the relative ages of the actors, it's not unreasonable to assume that he's her older brother. And yet she's effectively supporting him.
2: He does say towards the start, while drunk, my dear sweet baby sister.
5: Because uh-huh. um, I, uh-huh.
2: I used to quote that, I used to call my sister, <laughs> my dear sweet baby sister, like, from this. That, that relationship between them as brother and sister, that's... that's quite apparent all the way through it's quite important all the way through i love that we've already said he's a grifter and a, a con man he's just he's, he's just using his knowledge to kind of get what he can It's the the comfortable admission at the start it's like you you lied to me it's like i lie to everyone why
0: should you be any different i'm your sister that just makes you more gullible <laughs> the the two bits of costume that i picked up on that you, you said before the pit helmet uh, that's that's like the symbol of British colonialism, like
1: and we built up empires. We stole countries. That's what you do. that's how you build an empire. We stole countries with the cunning use of flags. Yeah. <laughs> you just sail around the world and stick a flag in. I claim India for Britain. And they go, You can't claim us, we live here. <laughs> Five hundred million of us. Do you have a flag? <laughs> We don't need a bloody flag. It's our country, you bastard. No flag, no country. You can't have one. That's the rules that I've just made up. And I'm backing it up with this gun that was lent from the National Rifle Association. That was it, you know. It's
0: not like that overwhelming arrogance and delusions of grandeur might come back and eventually bite us in the arse, you know, as a United Kingdom. And deciding this is their place now.
5: The great white hunter yeah. who hasn't got a clue what he's doing.
0: And the fact that he's always wearing shorts. He doesn't wear trousers, which makes him look like a boy rather than a man. So, you know, suitable. For I always wear shorts in hot weather, but it, it, it separates him from Rick the manly man, uh, who yeah. never wears shorts and always, you know, seems like dressed for action.
4: And in that day and age, like a British gentleman would not have worn shorts, no matter how hot. Because, again, that was what a boy would wear.
0: Yeah, they'd probably have worn those massive, like, trousers that go way out to the side and then come back in again for the <laughs> knees. <laughs> yes.
2: Many of you are wondering what's wrong with my pants. Well, they started running short of material right before they got to the knees, so I don't give me any shit.
4: I love the way that Jonathan and Evie's relationship is characterized in these movies, um, because it's very clear that they are extremely close and yeah, he conned her a bit. He lied to her and you know, that's cause that's what he does. But at the same time, like there's any competition with between them is very friendly. You know, he, he does not seem to begrudge her success whatsoever. He seems totally just happy for her. He like, he treats her as completely capable. He doesn't treat her as a child. He, you know, he trusts her to take care of things. He trusts her to be an adult. And I, I love that because the little asides, the little exchanges, like like when they're getting on the ship and she sees Rick all cleaned up that time. And the exchange between them, it's clear, you know, he, it's clear he picks up on the fact she, she's she got the hots for Rick so hard. Hmm. And they share this one look and she gives this little t- smile And it was like, oh, she... Like, the smile says, I'm totally gonna hit that. (laughs) (laughs) And he totally picked up on that.
3: And he's not possessive of her. Yeah. No! He never tries to be all like, You you can't come on my sister, her Crow magnum man. That's what Uh, John
0: Hanna sounds like in real life. (laughs)
3: He's he's got like this this really sick Scottish brogue, uh, yeah, judging yeah. from Spartacus anyway. But um, yeah, no, he, but he, yeah, he's he's her older sister in in so many other like if Michael Bay made this, he would absolutely be like trying to gatekeep her sexuality, and this whole movie would be a, oh. a macho contest between him and Rick and. And Rick and Evie would just be this, like, background, sort of, possessive, really nasty sort of, like, thing that was just all sorts of, like, Whoa, look at this body, eh? (laughs) Michael (laughs) Bay is now (laughs) Australian.
1: You were actually at Hamonapta. Yeah, I was there. You swear. Every damn day. No, I didn't mean that. I know what you meant. I was there. City's place, city of the dead... Could could you tell me how to get there? I mean, the exact location. You want to know? Well, yes.
0: Do you really want to know?
1: Yes. Then get me the hell out of here! Do it, lady!
0: Let's move on to Evie.
5: Evie's costuming is really quite key to her character because she changes clothes all the time. She has a different outfit for every circumstance and you can draw from that that either she is a people pleaser and she wears whatever's appropriate for what people need her to be, or she's adaptable and she wears whatever clothing's appropriate for the environment that she's in, or she is fairly young and enthusiastic and hasn't figured out who she wants to be yet and she is trying all of these costumes on to see which of them suits her best and i personally think it's a combination of all three when she's in the library she dresses as a librarian when she's out in the desert she puts the bedouin costume on and there are many other examples where she's dressing as you would wherever it is she is
4: She's
2: also trying to be taken seriously as a person, rather than noticed as a woman. Like, yes, okay, there's a couple of like night dress scenes, but for the most part, she's pretty much covered up, like most of the film. Yeah, like she dressed respectfully, as you say, Sharon. Compare that to the moment returns where there's just cleavage all the way through, and she's much more sexualized in the in the sequel, mm. which I take that's that's more that's more a, a movie direction choice rather than a. a comment on the character but yeah this one you go like you notice like yeah she's just a n- quite a normal person like, she's a re- much more respectable and she's and particularly because she's trying to become a scholar she's trying to maintain that respectability
3: it almost feels like she code switches because she's obviously used to living in sort of an, an english enclave in a non-english country she talks about having parents who are from different parts of the world and she can definitely uh, sort of exist in English society as well as being very well versed in Egyptian mythology and so we see her in the library she's she's dressed like a librarian she knows how to ride a camel literally better than than any of the adventuring dudes can ride the the animal most suited to desert travel it I, I do agree with Sharon it feels like she's certainly trying things out but also, feels like she's just kind of very adaptable and very comfortable in having, if not dual ethnic identities, definitely dual cultural identities.
5: Mm. And also, she—you get the impression that she is used to having to jump through hoops, which again can result in a very adaptable personality. So you've got the uh, the bit about the Benbridge Scholars. She's just had Dr. Bay, the uh, the guy in charge of the museum emphasising the importance of theory over practice. So he says, we're scholars, not treasure hunters. But Evie's application to uh, to join the Benbridge Scholars at whatever it is they do gets rejected because they say she hasn't got enough experience in the field. So <laughs> is the, there's this constant round of, well, you're not doing this well enough, but you're not doing that well enough, but you're not, you know what I mean? You're too so, political. Yeah.
2: Mm. <laughs> well, <laughs> there's a cunningness to her as well sometimes. Like, I, I love the when they arrive at Hammond and and all the Americans, they, they, they're going off on their own. They're doing what they think they need to do to find the treasure. And there's the whole, what does a woman know? You know, she obviously knows a lot more. She's knowledgeable, but she's actually putting that knowledge to use in terms of kind of beating the Americans at their own game. When she plans to dig in the chamber underneath where they are. And then while those beastly Americans, no offense are asleep, they'll, Pop up right underneath them and grab what they're looking for. Um,
1: did I miss something? Are we. are we going into battle? Lady, there's something out there. Something underneath that sand. Yes, well, I'm hoping to find a certain artifact. A book, actually. My brother thinks there's treasure. What do you think's out there? In a word, evil. The Bedouin and the Tuaregs believe that Hamanoptera is cursed. Oh, look, I don't believe in in fairy tales and hokum, Mr. O'Connell, but I I do believe that one of the most famous books in history is buried out there. The book of Amun Ra. It contains within it all the secret incantations of the Old Kingdom. It's what first interested me in Egypt when I was a child. It's why I came here, sort of a, a life's pursuit. And the fact that they say that it's made out of pure gold makes no never mind to you, right? You know your history. I know my treasure. Um, by the way, why did you kiss me? <laughs> no, I was about to be hanged. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Oh.
4: What? What'd I say? She doesn't sit on her laurels. She's not expecting anybody to do anything for her. Like, when, you know, the, the gunfight on the boat starts, you know, she's immediately fighting the guy. She's, into, she's defending herself she's not screaming, she's not, she doesn't seem to be very afraid, she, like, at the point when, you know, she must be pretty strong, because Rick hands her the bag of, you know, guns and ammunition, and she kind of, ooh, when she takes it, but then she just holds, you know, she has it and holds it, and this, you know, she's strong enough to hold on to this without problem, and, you know, she picks up a gun, and she may not have known how to shoot, but she figures it out real quick, and Mm. she's... damn good shot she's absolutely capable she can take care of herself and she's she's no shrinking violet she's not afraid of situations and she like her clothes seem like almost she knows how to dress given the situation but they're she doesn't care that much i think about dressing she's not like she's not worried about she's not obsessed with hair or makeup or her clothes in the way most women often are in movies
3: I
0: worked out while I was watching uh, the Mummy. This time, I, I I like this more than two of the Indiana Jones films. Uh, I, I love Raiders so much, and I love uh, um, I almost called it Holy Grail. There, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love Last Crusade. Most people would say that this is you know a more enjoyable movie to watch than King with the Crystal Skull, but it's better than Temple of Doom. It's less racist. It's a bit racist, but it's mm-hmm. less overtly racist. And if you compare Kate Capsule... <laughs>
1: oh, all of
0: her complaining and all of her da- like, just, she's, she's made to be everything that Marion isn't, which I get that they were what they were trying to do there, but uh, it, it's intensely annoying to watch, especially now. Uh, it, it just seems to be like, you know, you can't take women on a big adventure because they'll complain that they don't get all of their luxuries, which is... Uh, antiquated. It really is
2: the Indiana Jones elements of this film that actually made me me absolutely love it. And Uh. I almost think of it as almost like kind of an unofficial... Indiana Jones style film. Mm. the The line that Brendan Fraser says that always makes me think of Temple of Doom actually is like, "Look, you can either tag along with me or stay here and try and save the world." And I just instantly hear Harrison Ford.
0: I am allowing you to tag along. (laughs) So, can we speak about Rick then? Uh, Because we get probably more about Rick than anyone apart from Evie.
5: I think Rick, yeah. Rick gets a lot of visual storytelling. When we are introduced to him, the whole that whole intro setup is that he gets introduced taking on responsibility that wasn't his mm-hmm. because somebody else as the cowardice to disappear under fire.
0: Immediately followed by Benny also disappearing. Yes, absolutely. Under, under fire.
5: And that having <laughs> Benny do exactly the same thing, it reinforces before you've even met him or even heard him say much that Rick, he's brave, he's loyal, he's dedicated, and he only runs when literally everybody else does.
0: Yeah. But he's not an idiot, and he still has like a Han Solo, I'm not doing this, <laughs> uh, kind of thing going absolutely, on, which yeah. makes him more relatable. In fact, when he turns up in the prison, it's Mad Mardigan in Willow, which, totally is. Is, which is just doing Han Solo again. So it makes perfect sense. He <laughs> like, just grabbed Rachel Wise and
4: give me some water, you measly little pecks.
0: Only he uh, has beautiful uh, white teeth as opposed to Mad Mardigan's disgusting brown teeth.
4: <laughs> Rick is, number one, extremely observant. Mm-hmm. And number two, he pays attention and respects the cultures that he interacts with he brings up he mentions just again and this is very little things in passing but he brings up that the bedouins and tuaregs believe that this place is cursed or whatever i don't remember exactly the line but it's clear like i think that's how he survived when the when bay left him you know out in the desert to die i bet he found a bedouin tribe accepted their hospitality and they saved him and that's how he survived and clearly he's smart capable observant and isn't stupid and which i love he clearly he also is extremely adaptable and knows how to fit in at least reasonably well in whatever society he's in
0: as soon as he sees the weakness to cats he's like gotta get a cat
4: yep (laughs) yep yep yep
3: visually the the film sells him he's got this very iconic silhouette he's got a very recognizable wardrobe that's incredibly functional you've got the boots the pat the the pants and the shirt that are for functional wear and then you have the two gun holsters which show that he's also a man of action he's always got his weapons close to hand but i'm not sure that he ever intentionally wins a fight in the entire movie like Visually, he's coded as being a, a capable adventurer guy, but in practice, he's kind of like half Mad Morgan and half Ash from the Evil Dead <laughs> yeah. movies. He's yeah. he's always on he's always on the back foot, he's always having to run away, jump off boats, um, he's getting beat up by by mummies. He kills um, he kills Emotep on accident um, at the <laughs> yeah. very end. Which and they and they really play that up in the sequel too. Like there's there's straight up a you know we'll we'll get to that later, but there's straight up a, an Evil Dead esque action sequence in The Mummy Returns that oh, yeah. where he just about turns into Bruce Campbell, um, but that that makes him feel like he's a part of the same sort of um, cocktail as as Harrison Ford in terms of adventure movies. But it also gives him just this kind of his own sort of flair. He's got a bit of bravado. But he doesn't take himself too seriously, and he's all. He's also for, for a movie that has kind of a dismissive attitude about Americans.
1: Americans.
3: He's kind of like, yeah, no, we're we're kind of stupid sometimes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, and clearly he doesn't much like Americans because he joined the French Foreign Legion. That's a <laughs> so good a point. In America, <laughs> uh, he
5: he must have run away from that too. But I think with Rick. One of the things that I really, really like about his character is that he is a very impulsive guy. He's not a planner, but he respects the people around him who can plan. And I think I'll I'll talk about this more when we get to do The Mummy Returns, but his relationship with Evie works so well for me because of the give and take in the power dynamic of the relationship. Because the things that he excels at are the things that she's weaker at and the things that she's really strong in he lets her be really strong in he doesn't have this whole you know i know everything i'm i'm the it even when he he obviously isn't and i think that what you mentioned about him being um very very respectful as respectful as you can be in this context (laughs) um, of the the local cultures um Debbie, the fact that you picked up on that as well, I was really chuffed with that because that was one of my uh, <laughs> my main notes, was that he's got this um, recognition of the what the people around him experience and what they know about this place that he ad- kind of concedes he can't possibly know, as opposed to the other Americans who are stomping around going, oh, yeah, we've got it all mm. in hand.
0: That's a nice update on the like colonial explorer type the uh Clayton from uh, Tarzan was the like you know the the ultimate end of this is the guy who would have been the hero in the olden days in disney 's version he 's the villain released the same year like within a few months of this mm. they they had to kind of twist uh, uh Rick to be less stomping around taking stuff, and so they could transpose that onto the Goomba American cowboy types who are uh cartoons he's presented to this kind of treasure hunter but never really seems to want to
2: find the treasure like he he's he doesn't necessarily want to go to Hamanatra. like partly because obviously he remembers what he experienced there and he's, he doesn't trust it all but also because you know he just he doesn't think that they they should should go there it should just be left to itself as you say he's respectful of other cultures and you know at the risk of echoing forward to Mummy Returns like there's there's that line where he's um, talking to Alex the, the the son saying oh let's go and do this or something like that while your mother desecrates another tomb like and he's, he's he sees it as <laughs> he sees what she's doing as desecration like he says when he's talking to her on the boat on the Nile like he says you know, like they're talking about the Book of the Dead and he's like I know my treasure but he never you know when they're in that massive you know room full of treasure he's never like right let's load up like he's the one who actually stops you know Jonathan obviously because they have priorities to to rescue Evie first, but he's never, right, let's quickly find the tragedy. He's purely there to protect Evie while she's doing what she's doing. He just kind of wants, he almost wants them to get to Hammond see that it's a really spooky place, and then leave. Mm.
5: And he says to Benny that he's doing this for Evie because she saved his life. That's his outlined motivation. How honest he's being with Benny is
4: questionable, but he says it. Mm. I think he's in it for the thrill I think he has a bit of a death wish, because as, especially with the line when he comes upon the po- Jonathan in the poker game with the Americans, and he says, "I always bet with my life, never my money," and I'm like, "Oh, you are going running into dangerous situations on purpose," mm. and clearly he never shies away from a fight anytime, like, he's instantly ready with weapons, he's never like, he's never hiding behind anything, Like, at least not initially, he, you know, he may use cover, you know, when he needs to, but in general, he's very much I am ready for a fight, and you know, if I die in battle um, oh well, I think and I think it's one of the reasons he identifies a lot with Winston
5: mm, because fits.
4: he recognizes himself
5: yeah that fits with the impulsivity, actually. And one other thing as well about the, the recognising other people's experience and knowledge as exceeding his own, the fact that the thing he gives, gives Evie is the tools, he's recognising her skill, he's recognising her ability, and that's more meaningful to her than being given some trinket. Mm. Mm-hmm.
4: And it's okay.
0: manifestly clear that they both save each other's lives repeatedly. Again, with that, uh, with those yes. opposing skills. Like she, she saves his life because she thinks of and is aware of more things than he is in a scholarly fashion. And uh, he's able to go in and use his cunning and uh, uh, like weapon skills to. Uh, And and specifically his uh, ability to actually act, which is kind
5: of important. Mm, Which she doesn't Mm -hmm. have. She's been stuck in that library for years. She does not, at the moment, have the ability to act on her own behalf. So Mm. she's probably quite drawn to that in Rick anyway. And I think the fact that the guts of the attraction comes from her initially, and she is clearly shown to be a character who does have agency and does get to make her own choices is why it feels slightly less icky that there are occasional grabby moments. Mm.
0: He's a little piggish oh. at times, mm. most definitely. Yeah. Around this time uh, that this was being made, Superman Reborn was in the works. You remember with Nicolas Cage was going to play Superman for a Tim Burton film? Like the the Superman's been like a horrible level of uh, um, ...a uh, constant development hell... ...especially throughout the uh, 90s after Batman... ...they were like, we've got to do a comeback... ...but Brendan Fraser in the right project... ...with the right director... ...would have been a fantastic Superman to me... ...because he's got that... ...he's got that level of purity to him... ...he's actually... if you ever seen a film called Blast from the Past... ...he's playing a kid who was born in a bomb shelter... ...in the 60s... ...that was locked away from the outside... ...by a paranoid father... It sounds like a horror movie. It sounds like the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And then he comes to the surface in the 90s and he's got all of this Boy Scout sincerity. I mean, he's kind of Captain America. He's a gentleman, he's kind, and the comedy of this is that that's juxtaposed against the 90s, which was full of assholes. Though now, comparatively, seems as quaint as the era they were at that point lampooning. And that's Clark Kent. Although the one thing that's gotten better with age about Blast from the Past, his dad Christopher Walken was right to be paranoid of the Russians. He was just a few decades ahead. So yeah, it's kind of a tragedy to me that Brandon Fraser never got to play Superman.
4: He Do can that. pull off very, like, very, very sweet. I, yeah. I've, I've seen clips from that movie, I've not seen it, but he can, you know, dive in head first and be that character. And, you know, here same thing he can be super sweet here and you know he knows how to be romantic
0: mm. absolutely yeah he's suave when he comes out in the uh, the, the full posh gear
4: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and folks at home if you want to uh, see the range of Brendan Fraser uh, watch the maligned and everybody hates it film uh, Bedazzled the one with Liz Hurley uh, It's we watched it again this afternoon after acquiring the German Blu-ray because it's just not available on Blu-ray anywhere else <laughs> And, uh, love that film. It's really, you know, got a, uh, we got a soft spot for it. Like I said, not many people like it, but it was one of Harold Ramis's only films, uh, directing, aside from, uh, Groundhog Day and a couple of others. And it's, it feels like possibly this might be reappraised, uh, in a positive fashion.
1: But then I caught sight of that sunset and, I don't know, something stirred inside me and I had to stop and weep. Mmm, it's beautiful. It is. (laughs) Here I go again. Tissue? No, I never wipe my tears away. I'm not ashamed of them. I wear them proudly.
0: Like small, wet, salty badges of emotional truth. You and me both, Brendan. You and me both. Benny. Kind of the opposite of Rick in almost every way. (laughs) Kevin J. O'Connor. Now, we've quoted so many times on this show, it is better to be by the side of the devil than in his path. And we're always talking about this character, a weasel but he's the most entertaining pathetic weasel <laughs> out there it
5: really is i do love the fact that when you say that quote you make him sound so much more pathetic than yeah. actually in the, the in film. the
0: film he just he just sort of mutters it but like uh, when i'm doing that like i'm uh, exemplifying that kind of you know i am admitting that i am performing an evil act here by abiding with this but i'm too much of a coward to actually stand against it and that's Fanny.
3: He is a coward, but every now and then you see him genuinely gr- regret it. I, I always love the moment where he's he sees ImoTip do the big sandstorm thing. is just like, it's beautiful, you bastard. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Rick, Rick, you know, he's he stabbed Rick in the back, but Rick's one of the only people who you can tell. I, I, there's this whole thing that I've got about Summers being either unsung or maybe accidentally a very good visual storyteller well there's a blinking you'll miss it moment when uh rick and ardeth bay and jonathan are fighting the mummies benny runs away from Imhotep, and you see him enter frame as rick and everyone leaves fighting the mummies and his hand is on his weapon very clearly coded as i am going to help you fight these monsters and and it's mm. it's one of those things where um If Debbie was... didn't know to sit, then well done. <laughs> <laughs> well well Summers will will talk like on the commentaries about how there are things that they would like clip out in the editing that they that people would kind of like catch them on in terms of continuity errors. Oh, okay. But this is this is one of those things where I felt like there's just small little beats that you'll see that still tell a bit of story or character beat. Um and Benny really does feel like he's he regrets the the choices that he's made. He's just he's a survivor. He's done what he's had to do to not die. He would have absolutely died on the wall if he'd stayed there with Rick, because uh, he's he's not a soldier. He's he's probably in the French Foreign Legion for very different reasons than Rick is, <sighs>
4: mm-hmm. and
3: it's it's kind of pathetic and also slightly endearing. Just the actions that he'll take to stay alive. Um, one of one of the other things that I you know that I was mentioning is that um, around that same time in the movie, there's a very brief exchange where Rick has the duffel bag full of weapons, full of dynamite. They're throwing dynamite at the mummies as they're trying to get the golden book. And at one point you can see the duffel bag in the shot. And then a couple shots later it's gone. There's a hole where it used to be. And there's only one stick of dynamite left where, okay, I guess a mummy just like yanked it down a hole um, which maybe talks about a, a scene or sequence that was missing from the film. But uh, Summers just chooses very, very good, like even small um, seconds to to give you information about a scene so that it still feels like you understand what's going on about the sequences or especially in Benny's case about the characters. I don't think it's a
0: coincidence that, uh, <coughs> that Brendan Fraser plays a character named Rick and Rick's American. It's Bogart in um, Casablanca, only he is not challenged ethically. He's just the, uh, uh, the, the American romantic type. But he's, if you put him up against Benny, that's Peter Lorre, uh, uh, Signor Urgarte, the, the, the weasel who tries to run away. And uh, I, I feel like in the scripting stage, that's kind of what Summers had in mind originally. And then uh, he took Rick in a different direction to the point where he wasn't so mercenary and was actually a little bit more of a stand-up guy.
3: He's definitely influenced by Michael Curtiz. He does the Shadows on the Wall thing from The Adventures of Robin Hood. He, he's he's talked about um, that particular influence. I'm I'm definitely sure that Casablanca was a... A, well, you know, you've got the the tough-talking guy and then a bunch of colorful characters in a semi-Middle Eastern setting. I'm, I'm sure that Casablanca was a bit of an influence for him.
4: Yeah. I, I love the little moment when they're, they're going, they've left the museum and they're in the car and they're trying to get out of Cairo and they run into that alley. They run, you know, they, they're driving, you know, they're driving wildly and they're trying to get out of there and they run into the minions and they... Tap, you know, they have to stop the car when you know Imhotep's coming up and Benny's translating and Evie who again demonstrating complete bravery not doesn't seem scared at all is correcting Benny's translation Hmm. and Benny for for all eternity idiot and Benny Benny kind of there's just a moment when he kind of stops and he kinda like 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 he's retranslating in his head he's like Oh okay. Just and and it's a, a same thing blinking you'll miss it, but it's like oh yeah, he like he takes some pride that he can translate this and he like he feels bad that he did it wrong. That moment, I love that moment. And also um the moment uh as they are going down, they he's imhotep has sand-swirled them to back to Hamanoptera. And he and and Evie had this exchange of the whole, the whole nasty little fellows like you always get their comeuppance. Yeah, and and he looks like he's he acts he scoffs at it and then he stops and he's like, they do, they do, <laughs> yeah. And she's like, always. And he looks like he it changes almost changes his perception. Like this is not how he previously saw this situation. And it's like. Oh wow, you you just had a revelation, didn't you? And again, it tiny little moment that blink and you'll miss it.
2: I think another thing that makes Benny so endearing and makes us all because we all love him. He's he's such an entertaining character as you say. Oh yeah. <clears throat> I think part of it is that rick the hero of the story doesn't hate him like it's not like rick is then out like just to kill him like i mean rick yeah obviously like rick tries to save him right at the end like rick still sees him as a friend or be an idiot or, or see perhaps sees him as, as harmless and mm-hmm. um, you know even when he comes back and like everything's going wrong in in cairo like he just he uh, if it isn't my little buddy benny I think I'll kill you. Oh no, sorry, that's on the that's on the boat, isn't it? Yeah. And then in 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 back in Cairo, it's like you came back from the desert with a new friend, didn't you, Benny? Yeah, like there's no there's no menace at all. Like because Rick Rick knows that Benny is a coward. Rick knows that he could he could genuinely get aggressive and threaten to kill Benny, and Benny will do absolutely anything. But he doesn't do that because. He he still likes him, and I think that helps us like him
0: a little bit. I think he's frustrated with the fact that he put trust in Benny, and that, that Benny could betray him. What seemed like so easily. Also, but Brendan Fraser's massive; he's huge, which is another reason why he'd be a great Superman. Is this? He's got this statuesque quality. When he picks up Kevin J. O'Connor, he may not be trying to be a giant threatening bully, but it still makes it look like. I, come on, guy! You can threaten him without making him seem like a little mouse that you're holding up <laughs> off like that. That's maybe the only thing I would uh, um, have actually ever so slightly changed about this film was uh, would be the, uh, the the like actual th- like practically throttling the guy. I think it was. Was it on the boat when he tossed him over the side? And then Oh yes. no, he's going to shove his face into the ceiling fan yeah. <laughs> at, uh, at uh, one point later on when he's trying to get information out of him. But uh, at the same time, you're right, he does still have this sort of weird affection for him. And he could just kill him in cold blood, but he's the hero, so obviously he doesn't.
5: Mm. And also, ultimately, Benny's weaselness and determination to be by the side of the devil um, is what enables them to get to the bottom of... of- who Imhotep is and how yeah. they defeat him. So they they do kind of need him to behave like that. As a
0: costuming yeah. note, by the way, his uh, the, the fez that he's almost always wearing is. Boris Karloff's fez that he wears throughout most of The Mummy as as, uh, Emotep. They couldn't stick that on Arnold Vosloo so they stick it on (laughs) Benny instead. Uh, (laughs) The
5: the conglomeration of religious charms that Benny has around his neck is kind of the flip of Evie's constant costume changing. Evie is adaptable to her circumstances and so is Rick. Hmm. Benny is fits in nowhere so he constantly carries around the trappings of everything Mm. as a desperate hope to get him out of trouble.
0: Also since each of them is a symbol of a different faith that he can't have at the same time, most of them are exclusive clubs. He is effectively swearing false loyalty to everyone and actual loyalty to no one. lay off characters for a moment, because we've got to talk about some other aspects of the film, though we will cover Ardith Bay and Emotep himself at some point soon. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith's score. <sighs> I did not appreciate this when I first saw the film, but I have listened and re-listened to this repeatedly. It's one of the most evocative, uh, you know, sweeping, epic, beautiful scores of the 90s. And if you if you listen back to it like that, just those first few bars take you to the city of Thebes at the beginning, and and it's 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 transportive. For me, this one edges out the score for The Mummy Returns, which was by Alan Silvestri, who again is one of my absolute favourite composers. It's just that I ever so slightly prefer this one.
2: As you say, Jerry Goldsmith's score is so transportive; it feels like part of the. The film. You wouldn't be surprised if you heard, if they could just hear that music as they're walking through the desert. I guess like, yeah, Sylvester's score, and I do absolutely love it. I still prefer it to Goldsmith. But Sylvester's score, you you hear it and you you remember you're watching a film. Goldsmith, it, it kind of takes you out of the, the the scene and puts you back in your specific situation, whereas Goldsmith draws you in.
3: It is very immersive and very evocative both of the uh, of the the sort of places they're trying to take you but also of the mood. This is more of a horror film than Mummy Returns is in a lot of ways. It's very it's very much an adventure in Indiana Jones sort of thing, but they also play a lot of still very uh, kind of jumpy sorts of scares, but he is trying to build some sort of scary atmosphere. He's got like gooey monsters and yucky bugs and very much in a sort of like 12-year-old campfire sort of way but Goldsmith's score also fits into the atmosphere of, of that very well and I, I think that was one of his great strengths as a, as a composer I, it's not a great movie but if you listen to his score for The 13th Warrior he does a very similar sort of combination of big broad adventure but also very atmospheric, deep and sort of haunting horror-esque uh, tones and melodies for that um, but I, I think Goldsmith is just in general one of the more underappreciated composers of his era Okay, we could talk about the practical effects and the CG at this
0: point because it really does seem quite divided if you uh, uh, sit and watch it because the the first uh, act in a bit uh, it's almost entirely without CG I think that you get the, uh, uh, the mummy's face in the sand at the very beginning kind of as a, a a prologue to what's going to be happening and some amazing marriages of cg and practical set building to render the ancient civilizations of egypt and uh obviously you get the the scarabs being chucked all over um arnold Vosloo. by the way arnold Vosloo was in uh mummified wraps for four hours and it freaked him out oh i just thought you couldn't have figured out, like, a very quick slip-on, slip-off, and then bandage up his head, straight-jacket way of doing this one? Stephen, yeah. you crazy person? He's lying down. Just put a zip on the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it, yeah. That's crazy.
4: And you can clearly tell, speaking of the the effects, that the, the body that they put into the coffin right before they poured the scarabs on it is very clearly not Arnold Vosloo. Because that person is way too skinny. Mm.
0: Yeah, Arnold Vosselu pretty built.
4: Yeah, he's, he's a big guy. He's.
0: <laughs> it's kind of neat that he wasn't particularly well known then and, and almost still isn't now. It gives him this mysterious, exotic look to him where you're like, oh, who's this guy? Uh, yeah. he, he evokes Yul Brynner in *The King and I*, but uh, him not speaking much, aside from uh, in uh, Egyptian, uh, gives him again that 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 sense of mystery. Whereas in the, um, uh, the original thirty-two one, there's a lot of monologuing from uh, Karloff. Uh, the the original uh, narration at the beginning was going to be Emotep, but then some has realised, oh, he wouldn't understand English, so they gave yeah. it to um, Ardeth Bay, which gives it that. He's got, like, the Galadriel overview of history, which is the best way of uh, of putting it, because otherwise you're getting Emotep's story from Emotep's point of view, which is going to yeah. be slightly coloured and untrustworthy.
5: <laughs> just a little. Or you've then got other characters having to read it in books or whatever, and you've got translation issues and perspective, or the mm. fact that it could just come across as boring. The intros that... Um, dead Fair does for this and the returns hmm. I love them they're such a great way of of really setting you in the story and saying this story has been going on for a long time before you arrived yeah this is one
4: chapter
0: <laughs> and Indiana Jones doesn't have that because it's all about the archaeological sort of like uh, Indy will tell you about it I and mean, you're like oh, there's that brilliant sort of uh, here's the Ark of the Covenant and here's the book and then you've got the haunting music playing in the background is it's like a fire, lightning, power guard. And you kind of have to interpret from that, the little hand waves, the music and the imagery, oh, this was huge. It's a much cheaper way of doing it. Yeah. Uh, but it's, I, I love that both of these versions of, uh, of uh, depicting epic history exist. Mm-hmm. more epic mythological history in this case.
1: It was to remain sealed inside his sarcophagus, the undead for all of eternity. The Magi
2: would never allow him to be released, for he would arise a walking disease, a plague upon mankind, an unholy flesh eater with the strength of ages, power over the sands, and the glory of invincibility.
0: I L O V E love. How hammy that is. It's like a tenacious D song played straight.
1: Oh, the dragon's balls blaze and as I stepped into his cave, then I sliced his fucking cackles with a long and shiny blade.
0: It's really pretty light on the CG for a lot of the way through, and then if you watch Returns, it's really light on the CG <laughs> by comparison. Uh, so, um, they didn't want to use makeup on Emotep's uh, face when they were showing him coming back together they were using the most early basic uh, performance capture for him. So if you you watch the um, extras, there's a guy explaining to you what we already now know is performance capture. And he's like, you know, this is this incredible new technology. Look, there's eight different points on this guy's body where he walks along, where it sort of, it tracks that movement. And so it's the really basic stuff which would very soon be turned into Gollum. But when it came to the actual turning him back into Arnold Vosloo... Rather than doing it with makeup and making it all sort of ragged and d- disgusting looking, they were they wanted to have holes in his face that you could see through. So it was it was all kind of uh, done by emplacing sort of digital prosthetics on him, whereby you could see the background behind him, which is probably the best use. Honestly, like the like, like some of the like the f- the close-ups on his face when he's getting close look pretty great, but there are some other ones whenever he gets a big stretchy gob for
4: example
0: (laughs) that start to kind of stretch how we um you know can accept it and it was a little bit ropey back in the day and now that we've seen so much better it's a lot ropey (laughs) but there's enough grounding in the uh the practical and the costumes and the props and the sets and there's so much that's actually there that the little bits that feel a little pasted on and stand out and pop just a little too much, you can kind of let them slide. That was just my take on this one. I'm, you go know about the stretchy gob. I'm always impressed at how far
2: Vosloo can stretch that gob himself when he's fully formed and he's doing the uh, sandstorm and he's proper like, you know hands aside and oh, I'm trying to act it out. This is audio. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like you, you can picture it. Like it's just it, it, how how are you how are you not unhinging your jaw at this point?
4: Yeah, yeah. I it to me the CG now. It, of course, yes. It was not even then. It was not great um uh, but i now watching it i find it has a certain amount of charm hmm. because it is outdated and it works yeah as as you say there's there's so much practical and there's so much they sell everyone in this movie is selling the world 110% mm-hmm. and especially especially arnold Vosloo, cuz like imhotep is genuinely intimidating and pretty if you were in that situation you would be goddamn terrified of this guy
3: like <laughs> The
0: more Arnold Vosloo turns up, the more intimidating he is. Yeah, he
5: is very, yeah. very scary. Yeah. yeah. Also cut. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. The other thing this movie gets right is those sort of big sweeping CG vistas of ancient cities, which you didn't quite see as much of um, at that particular time. Like, this was a year before Gladiator was doing that with Rome. Yeah. So... We we hadn't gotten to see the Lord of the Rings with Minas Tirith and Gondor and yeah, those were those were a lot of miniature work, but it was also a lot of compositing. So a lot of the faraway stuff still really holds up fairly well. Mm-hmm. The the closer you get, the more you sort of see the yeah, that's not quite as great. Or the more <laughs> or, or the more sort of like deliberate detail they try and add. The the, the sandstorm looks really good. The face in the sandstorm looks uh. not a little lawnmower more manish, well, yeah. or more, more manly. Exactly, and and then uh, the the way they do the, um, the there's a couple times where they're switching back and forth between real mummies and pra- uh, real mummies and practical suits and makeup, and the very almost sort of cl- uh, stop motion-y looking CGI mummies that Rick is just cutting in half mm. with his big old sword. That would be the and, Jason and the Argonaut side of it. Yes, which which as a, which as a Harryhausen fan I, I really like, but it's also kind of jarring going back and forth between the, the crawling mummy hand that's very obviously CGI and then the just dudes in suits that are holding on to Brendan Fraser. Oh, that crawling mummy hand is total evil dead as well. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. yeah.
5: I think <clears throat> another reason why they get away with the slightly hokey CG even now is that so much of it reminds you of... Other places you've seen it used and it's really sold you on it. So there's there's so much in this that just makes me think that's from Terminator 2 and that's from Terminator 2. And the fact that <laughs> Right, T Two, Lawn Mower Man does it as well, this does it, and then they carried on and used it in Return of the King, we can make people melt. Look, isn't it cool? <laughs> Look,
1: don't
0: you like it when we make the man melt?
5: <laughs> Whenever there's CG, I'm just sitting there waiting for somebody to melt.
0: (laughs) It was hard to do fire in those days. It was a lot harder to do water. It was easier to do a melting man.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Summers is also trying to make a movie that looks like it cost way more than he actually had. The Mummy was an $80 million movie, but Mm -hmm. has a lot of stuff going on. And then The Mummy returns like it was barely a hundred million dollar movie and he probably should have been given more for that. He's considering the, the turning point that CG was at where we hadn't done a lot of digital actors. We hadn't done a lot of um, physical people interacting with digital things the way you see in basically every blockbuster. Now it's sort of admirable the way he used his toolkit I'm not going to say he was necessarily a trailblazer, given that this was the same year that The Phantom Menace came out but, and was doing a lot of the same sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. But it was really, you know, bless him, he really was trying. Yeah. Yeah.
0: To put things in perspective regarding budget, uh, in 2008, so this would have been nine years later, The Kingdom of the Crystal Skull came out, $185 million versus the 80 for The Mummy. That's, that, that's a lot more. It also feels like Steven Spielberg was sitting and watching the mummy and taking notes. There's some stuff that uh, is like,
1: you know, that, that's kind
0: of like uh, a bit in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. The, Sharon, you mentioned that the end sequence where they um, pull away from that collapsing temple yeah. of Mummy Returns is definitely from that. Um, the Benny is just Mac. Like Mac is like a oh, CIA version of Benny.
1: What are you a triple agent now? And he's like. No, I was just lying about being a double. And it's like, I fuck. was also lying about eating gold, because I love gold. Oh, what a pretty little lie that was. <laughs> Me eating gold.
3: Mac is, some, is Benny if he
0: ate Benny. Yeah, and uh, like they both see, have the same predilection for treasure. They, they both <laughs> go after that at the end, and it's their undoing in a very similar tre- treasure chamber. And uh, there's a couple of other things that I couldn't—I uh, I honestly have now forgotten—but um, there, there were times when I was like, "Wow, you've you really liked this one, Steve?" Mm.
5: There's lots in returns that echoes Temple of Doom, specifically.
0: Oh yeah, mm. yeah. So it's kind of like snake eating its tail. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's talk about Arnold Vosloo's mummy and uh, the way he's characterised a lot less through his speech than everybody else. Or more specifically, that he can only speak in ancient Egyptian, which marks him as someone a lot more exotic. And that means that his look and his costume and his makeup is working overtime. And I think more than anybody else in the whole film, he is defined by his actions. Like As a villain, he kind of owns the picture. Discuss.
5: I think they set him up as being a somewhat sympathetic villain. He's not an anti-hero, but because you get his story and an Aks and a Moon story before we actually get to the heroes, what you see of him initially is that he is effectively saving her from the slavery of being the pharaoh's mistress. Mm-hmm. Because she's, she is very much a possession the whole thing with the body paint that is almost all she wears, and hot damn. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, that that whole int- introductory scenario, the fact that he is willing to take that risk to, to love her and to rescue her from that means that you go into his story thinking, well, he's not all that bad. Yeah.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't necessarily even really want to take over the world, either. Like, no. he's not... talk Like, the curse attached to him speaks of death Absolutely. to the whole world if he's ever let out. But, but he's not, not the one going, I want to take either. over the world. Like Yeah. yeah.
5: This- All he's really fussed about is getting an axe and a moon back.
0: Now, this isn't super pro-mummy, because, like, later on, he's like, yeah, if I defeat the Scorpion King, then I can take over the world or wipe it out or something like that. So it's... It feels like he gets less complex as things go along, and, and just has to lead up to we have to save the whole world. But it would have been uh, ultimately like that. The, the main reason to not let him have an sunumun and get and carry out his plan is that it requires them to kill Evie, and that's something yes. that nobody wants.
5: Which am I am I reading this correctly? By the way, I know he says that she's the reincarnation of an or something. He, he seems to imply that when he first meets her. Yeah. But Does
0: he not have eyes at the time? I forget.
5: Uh, well, I said... No, no, no. Oh, no he he just took the eyes from a to,
0: guy who's needs glasses. She's very
5: short-sighted, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, the, but Evie seems to simply be the sacrifice that when he resurrects an body, which is obviously going to be mummified the same way his was, although not with as much grossness, um, <laughs> that... Evie will be used to give her all the parts that she's missing and the energy that she needs to come mm. back to mm. her whole self.
0: You could uh, uh, retroactively, because that, the, she wasn't Nefertiti at the time, but you could retroactively decide that the mummy thought, oh, no, you're Nefertiti. Okay, we'll tell you what, then. Well, the, the best plan here is that we use your corpse to feed Ankh yeah. moon because she'd like that. Mm.
2: That's how I always read this now, like post Post Mummy Returns, and I know it absolutely wasn't intended at the yeah, time, yeah. but Post Mummy Returns, I do always read this and and think, yeah, ah, uh, right. So he's picked her because, and and I, and I I'm watching the clip today, like when he, he first encounters her in the in the tombs under you know underneath Hamanatra, mm. it's dark, it's shadow, and he looks and he said. Moon. hes slightly confused, like he's only just woken up after you know three, four thousand years. You're um, gonna be groggy, like, sleep drunk. Yeah. <laughs> He'd be like, yeah. "I know your face. There's only two women I know. I'm hoping you're the right one."
5: <laughs> <laughs> They're both brunettes. You can see why. I want to say Anaximund, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his mind's clearly been dwelling on her for quite Ooh. some time. Oh, so,
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: Please don't leave me. And again, going back to Sharon's point about how sympathetic we feel for um, Vosloo's Imhotep, it's Like it's even in Ardeth Bay's narration. Like when, when they when he's talking about the the you know, Imhotep and Anax and meeting. It's like there's a softness to. But for their love, and even when <laughs> Ardeth you know, knows that, that he's now, he, you know, they mentioned, oh, he he called me a knox in the man, and he's like, oh, he's still in love with the creature. And it's not, it's not, oh, that's sad. Oh, that's stupid. Isn't it? There's, there's a respect there on our death's part of like, right, this is love. And I appreciate this is love, but we did put that stupid curse on him. So he still needs to be stopped.
4: Mm. Yeah, <laughs> idiots curse, who put that
0: curse, by the way, like, come on,
4: stupid curse. Why the hell would you do that? It, it dated. what's that sort of thing? Like, <laughs>
2: And also, like, okay, I was, I was thinking this as well. Like, when, when he's buried, like, okay, they, they lock him in with the cool, like, sun-shaped um, key. Why not then destroy the key? If, if him coming out unleashes the ten plagues, either destroy the key or build a sarcophagus that, like, that doesn't require a lock. That, that I don't know. That once it's shut, just does not open again. Like, I, I don't know, wedges itself shut or something. Like, don't give the possibility of it being opened. I know we then have no film,
0: yeah. but if you're gonna, if you're determined to make that stupid a curse, plan for it. Red Octane, who made the rock band instruments, if you got them during the Xbox 360 era, built the Fender Stratocaster models with necks that, once you'd fasten them in, could not come out again. I'd like to think that ancient Egyptian curses would be more binding... ...than a plastic guitar that lets you pretend to play Queen songs. It's, uh, honestly, it feels like it's missing one line in the script where it's like, well, that's stupid. Why would they do that? Like, surely they have to realise that in a few thousand years, grave robbers just aren't going to respect superstitions.
2: That feels like a Rick line that got cut.
3: Yeah. <laughs> well, that's stupid. Well, the problem with the key <laughs> is that it unlocks the sweets cabinet, so if you destroy it, then yeah. you can't get the pastries. It's, it's
4: the whole
1: thing.
3: What
0: is your obsession with my forbidden sarcophagus of
3: mystery?
4: <laughs> <laughs> I would say it might go to the what I think was Egyptian arrogance of being, you know, they were the world power for yeah. several thousand years. And I'm going to guess that most of, like that that pharaoh seti the first could not imagine a time when egypt was not a superpower
5: Mm.
1: Mm. i
4: was gonna say yeah
5: you you get a dominant power that's been in its ascendance long enough and they get to a point where they cannot perceive that the world will ever be other than it is with them at Mm. the top and everybody doing things exactly the way they do them
0: and the whole bent of the curse is so that this guy is tormented forever so the flip side has to be if he's ever not tormented woe betide you Mm. Uh, because you you undid this uh, uh, really important spell so uh, it's it's born of arrogance and wrathful and really we've got that pharaoh to blame for all of this crap
5: and what's the betting that all of these curses on tombs had worked fine so far people (laughs) read them and went yeah, clearly, you know, dog waving stick in the air, that means don't let the guy out. And so
0: also, the Magi are there watching over things to try to make sure that bozos don't come stumbling in and do exactly what happened in this movie. Mm. It's really neat that um, his character ends up quite so sympathetic, quite so kind of like a, a steadying, stern presence in the film. Like, if I was going to make this today, he'd end up actually kind of being the hero for me. Like mm. you know, uh, Oh, absolutely. For a start. Odette Fair, like this the Israeli George Clooney is dreamy mm. <laughs> and uh, oh. uh, he, he turned up in the Resident Evil movies. was like, oh god, he's Carlos that's not much of a character and he didn't get used much and it's like, why haven't hasn't this guy been used? Uh, he played Doctor Fate in Justice League Unlimited excellent voice acting he's basically the uh, DC Doctor Strange He turned up in
2: 24 Legacy which was uh, Fox's attempt to reboot 24 but without any of the original characters. Okay, yeah. one original character turned up. And so he turns like, up, uh, like Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, then? Yeah, huh. essentially, yes. <laughs> um, and he turns up at the end like, as this uh, this terrorist character who isn't necessarily the villain. He does turn out to be sympathetic. And I, and I was like, who the hell are you? Like, I recognize you. And this is 20 years on. I was like, yeah. I recognize you. You're older. And then I was like, oh, look, it's him. You
0: still look good. Oh, <laughs> I can believe it. Uh, and it's it's notable that, like, he's the uh, uh, sympathetic support hero character, and he is of the land. It's also notable that both Evie and technically Jonathan are half-Egyptian, so it feels a little less like invading colonial British people, stumbling in and breaking everything and taking what they want.
3: One of the yeah. things I appreciate about this is that I – this is – sort of of its time in in that it's a it's very much a 90s film in its attitude towards america it's kind of dismissive it was like oh you silly americans it's like yeah we are just kind of dumb and bumbly and just looking at it from a post 9-11 perspective this would not be the same if it had just been made like three or four years later there's none of the like braggadocious american exceptionalism and there definitely would not have been a middle eastern coded heroic man who who invokes the name of Allah in in a way that's Mm. not seen as threatening or anything he's he's an ally he's more capable than most of everyone else he's he's only seen as threatening in that he's trying to protect them from themselves it's it's kind of a miracle that Ardeth Bay exists in the way he does Mm. at all for all that the mummy movies both kind of have a little bit of racism in them, like they're they're not not racist, no. But they're <laughs> <It's> way, <there. laughs> but they're way less racist than they would have been if they'd been made in yeah. like 2003 or four. Yeah,
4: yeah.
0: Like uh, it, uh, if it cut to the um, uh, like the Magi waiting on the uh, ridge, rather than them being no, we're trying to protect this place, it would have gone.
1: yeah that that would have been
3: best case scenario yep small point
5: about the magi by the way they get off lightly Mm -hmm. like the original pharaoh's Mm guards by previous egyptian law standards shouldn't they have been buried with him
0: oh yeah they have a cushy life
5: they get to live and have descendants that can continue oh
0: yeah (laughs) the pharaoh added a ps and he said, "Leave the magi. Yeah, They've got I'm... to look after to the tomb. Yeah, so exactly. make sure." I think I'm
5: going to that... need alive guards on the outside of yeah, the
0: door. That, it. Yeah. he just had this brainwave today. It's such a shame he's dead. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> and he said he wants his cats kept alive as well.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: <laughs> There's one part about the
2: magi in the, in the first film which the the second film returns has has ruined elements of the first film mm-hmm. in that the Magi are five blokes on horses sitting on a cliff watching down hoping that no one wakes up the creature because mm-hmm. they don't seem to step in until almost the last minute let's be honest like because you know the French Foreign Legion ha- hold the ruins at the start there's a lot of them I grant you but like the, there doesn't seem to be have, have been any effort on the Magi's part to say right you're here you need to go and um, they just sit up on the hill and hope that you know the dothraki clear them out <laughs> um, but then in the returns they've got like a lord of the rings style like they're the Ro- they're the Rohirrim mm. in in returns like yeah. there's friggin hundreds of them it's like if there are that many of you just camp out in Hamanacha. like just <laughs> camp there and anyone who comes in occupy them it, out yeah. with your big curvy swords
5: mm. I will say this though bear in mind there's about nine years between the first one and the sequel it is entirely feasible that Ardeth Bay went okay guys recruit recruitment
0: drive. drive Yeah, drive <laughs> that yeah. is one hell of a recruitment drive do you
5: want to get wonderful. mummies
0: because that's how we got mummies
1: <laughs> okay, there's so one more
2: is... tiny tiny thing that bothers me about that, that those opening scenes with them on the uh, mm-hmm. on the, the cliff the language I know they used an Egyptologist to try and work out how ancient Egyptians sounded yeah but there's something about um, Ardeth's lines where they sound all repetitive, but the captions keep changing. It, like, he just, it sounds like he says three or four times, <laughs> and that can mean anything from the creature is safe to, no, the desert will kill this one. Okay. It's like Pokemon, like, "squatter, squatter, squatter, squatter."
0: You're right. <laughs> ah, it's like, I'm, I'm glad we're moving on from this.
5: Although it is always going to be tricky to find out how ancient Egyptian was spoken. yes.
0: yes. Hey um, there's one really great practical effect, and it's so simple, but it's it's how they uh, they light the city of Humonuptra with the mirrors. The, the the way that it is presented, just very visually, you get okay. Right, so a beam comes down there and bashes off the mirror, and then bounces off a whole bunch of them. It's like a Zelda puzzle, and it's like, well, this all makes perfect sense.
4: And interestingly enough, about that, MythBusters um, actually tested that,
1: mm-hmm.
4: and it it would work. Except for the fact that you would be have to be constantly adjusting the angle of the mirrors because, because the of the sun changes. Yes.
0: Oh. So yes. they just have a bunch of dudes just hanging around on the mirrors going, up.
1: Aziz light! Much better. Thank you, Aziz. Because
4: yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 if you move one of them it cuts off the whole
4: thing. Honestly, that sounds like something Egyptians might have done.
0: Yeah. They
2: were big on it's green, like the ancient Egyptian bulbs. equivalent of uh, Christmas bulbs like one one goes the whole circuit
0: goes like oh bloody hell which one was it now and then you got to just play rock and roll on all the yeah. mirrors to get it right oh my god
5: oh plus <laughs> the fact that in equatorial areas you know how fast the sun sets oh
0: yeah you can see it yeah, just...
5: yeah. it's like one minute yep yeah, we're all fine and then the next minute shit it's dark and no one's near the door what do we do now
0: I've seen the documentary <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula that thing zooms down at the end
5: <laughs>
3: Right. Um, Another practical effect I really appreciate is the the, the reverse photography they use for the sand sometimes. mm -hmm. They just, whenever Imhotep is, like, swirling around, sometimes it's like, ooh, CGI sandstorm to make the mummy swirl into sand. But sometimes they just threw a load of sand into a room through a window, and they (laughs) rewound the tape to make him go out the window, which... I mean, look, it it works. It's something they've been using for a hundred years in cinema for a reason. Oh, speaking of it works,
0: you're, you're thinking of the exact same bit as me. Probably. Benny jumps out of a window, or someone that looks like Benny jumps out of a window, <laughs> and Kevin sort of puts his head up right at the front of the screen goes, goes, I just bashed my head, and then goes running off. They do it again, and the mummy returns. Rick and Jonathan jump out of a window, which a guard conveniently shoots out for them first so he's like oh you might if you're gonna jump out the window I'll get rid of the glass for you because you might you don't want to hurt yourself Psh, thank you they jump out and then Brendan Fraser and John, John Hannah Hanna. come limbering over the fence
5: that's actually not the bit I was thinking of. The Just what Brendan was saying about the sand going in and out of the window. The scene where Imhotep pours through Evie's keyhole in the mm-hmm. form of sand. Oh, that's Dracula. And then disappears in a tower of sand at the end. Yeah, yeah that's totally Dracula and his rats.
0: The only thing he didn't turn into is, a, is an embarrassing, oversized bat. <laughs> Stage. Yeah. and at least they end that scene in a less uh, awkward way than unclean They must be burned boom and then cuts to the next thing
5: <laughs> it's way better than the Dracula scene
0: yeah. I was
2: going to say similar um, practical effect that always uh, amuses me is when they exit the the sand typhoon, when they've, been, when they've been blown back to Hamanutra. On the left side of the screen, you've got this swirling sandstorm, and then suddenly, like, you know, Rachel Vice and, and Benny just suddenly fly out and land on the sand. It's clearly just like some scaffolding that they've been told, right, jump off. <laughs> okay, tough stuff.
1: Try a right hook. Bob your fist and put it up. that. Now mean it. Hit mm-hmm. it right here. Oh, mean it! Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time for another drink. Unlike my brother, sir, I know when to say no. Uh Uh-huh. And unlike your brother, miss, you, I just don't get. Uh, Ah, I know. You're wondering, what is a place like me doing in a girl like this? Yeah, something like that. Egypt is in my blood. You see, my my father was a very, very famous explorer, and he loved Egypt so much he married my mother, who was an Egyptian and quite an adventurer herself. Hmm. Hmm. I get your father and I get your mother, and uh, I get him, but what are you doing here? Oh. Folk, I. I may not be an explorer or or an adventurer or a treasure seeker or a gunfighter, Mr. O'Connell, but I am proud of what I am. And what is that? I am a librarian. I am going to kiss you, Mr. O'Connell. Call me
0: Rick. Oh, Oh. Rick. Hmm. And those lovely people at the $15 tier on Patreon get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to... Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Haskell Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe Kat Esp, Cassandra New I don't even know what I'm doing yet Timothy Green Matthew A. Siebert Joseph Gluck Kevin Otero Luke Hatfield Nick Orr Duran Barnett Tom Painter Finnmar Nicole James Enright Mark Lusch Dan Mayer Joe Crow Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius Dave Hickman Aaron Lukluse, Kieran Dachler, and the all-powerful sorceress Lorraine Chisholm. Next week, The Mummy returns, and as a special treat, you also get the best bits from my quick review of the 2017 movie that kicked off and simultaneously sunk Universal's dark universe, The Tom Cruise. Featuring The Mummy. This week's quick review, available to everyone on our Patreon at the $5 level or up, is Fighting With My Family, the story of the WWE's Paige, featuring Dwayne The Rock The Johnson. That episode is 45 minutes worth of wrestling madness. Here's a clip. Uh, It it credits her at the end as being part of spearheading the uh, uh, women's revolution. Absolutely. Significantly, the belt in this is the diva's belt. It was pink and sort of like it was hot pink, mm. um, and it said diva on it. And they were never called wrestlers; they were called divas, which is like the girls. Diva, as we already said in the WrestleMania show, is a somewhat negative connotation for a girl who wants all the attention.
5: Mm, indeed, but diva specifically is a performer. It's a singer. It's a yeah. you know somebody who's there to. Do something artistic, not someone who's there to kick the shit out of you.
0: Yeah, and they have subsequently changed that to the Women's Championships and have given it a much more awesome, powerful red W belt, which is not a little Wonder Woman-ish. Indeed. (laughs) So to round off on the 1999 film The Mummy... In terms of effects, it's a few notches above the Lawnmower Man, but nowhere near the kind of computer assisted nemesis where you simply watch the performance and marvel at the look and presence of them like Captain Barbosa or Davy Jones would in a few years' time. But of course, this was the crucial stepping stone between the lawnmower man and Barbosa, The liquid, smoke and sand effects, the walking corpses and ravenous insects, all look yeah, pretty basic and limited now when compared to those employed in the 80s. The supreme irony being that the same way that two-dimensional Super Nintendo games look great today, while three-dimensional PlayStation 1 games and N64 games don't, practical effects at the top of a tower of progress will always look better than digital effects at the bottom of their own tower. But this was, as we've said before and we'll say again, a crucial stepping stone to getting the effects we enjoy now, today, to that point where we don't even really think about them being effects unless the characters and story are wafer thin and terrible like, for example, the 2017 movie, The Tom Cruise. The thing that really impacted in 4K this time was that I felt like I could practically smell the ancient artifacts that surrounded these guys. That's why beautifully detailed and immersive sets and costumes and prop design is so important. The Hobbit films are testament to this, but only when held in sharp relief with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. There is no digital effect added in post that can convince an actor they are actually there in these places like a practical one can on the day. Transport those actors, those windows to your world, and they will transport us. And because all of these actors were able to enter into the sense of fun adventure, that makes this an adventure we not only enjoy being on, but come back to time and again. This episode has been so eagerly awaited by so many people, I was genuinely surprised at how beloved The Mummy is. The Mummy was released in May 1999, only a few weeks after The Matrix blew everyone away with its vision of a dark future ruled by technology. This Golden Age adventure was seen as a little old-fashioned. I don't know about you, but in this dark, tech-ruled future, I could use a little old-fashioned. Many thanks to our wonderful guests, Debbie Morse, Brendan Agnew, and James Batchelor, who will all return next week like the mummy himself. I've been Alex Shaw.
5: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And death Death is Only the beginning.